This is God's infallible, wonderful, inerrant word. Revelation chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Cyrus, Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. 
But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. I got lights here. Oh, there I am. <laughs> All right, here we go. It's the day of sound issues. Labor Day. Sound system doesn't want to work. Um, we are going to spend some time reflecting on this text together, Revelation chapter 1. Perhaps you've read, or, or maybe you've just heard of it, there's an essay by, essay by this guy, Jonathan Swift, called The Modest Proposal. It was written in 1729, 300 years ago, and he wrote it to address the issue of poor Irish peasants starving. Now, Swift, if you don't know anything about this, he'd, number, he'd made all these efforts in, in Irish Parliament trying to pass legislation that would help all, the, all these starving people, but had gotten nowhere. And so in 17, 1729, he wrote an essay suggesting that poor people should ease their plight by selling their children to be eaten by the rich. Now, before you get too horrified, understand that what Swift was doing uh, is called satire. He's arguing for something so absurd that it sort of highlights the problem, and it mocks the people who won't fix the problem. It's actually a way to advocate for the poor, because he's pointing out how cruelly they're being treated, so cruel that they may as well, you know, resort to selling their children for cannibalism. But if you don't know satire then you might think that what Swift was doing was advocating, oh, cannibalism, great solution to poverty. And so what I'm saying is genre, which and genre just means the kind of literature a piece of writing is, genre can change the meaning of, of a piece of writing quite a bit. And I say that because Revelation, uh, the book of Revelation, it's a kind of genre that we haven't really encountered much, really even in the whole history of Resurrection Church. If you've been here since that first meeting in my living room, we haven't really talked about this hardly at all. And the book of Revelation is called Apocalyptic Literature. Now, apocalyptic, apocalypse, that sounds quite, you know, exotic, but it just means to, to uncover or to reveal. That's what an apocalypse is. The book of Revelation, then, it's not a chronological telling of the times, of the end times. It's not like a reverse genesis where we started everything and now we're winding everything down. It's not poetry like the Psalms. It's not simply ethical and moral teaching, you know, like other parts of the New Testament. It's apocalyptic prophecy, which means sometimes it's telling us what's to come. Sometimes it's telling us something that's already happened. It does have, at times, an ethical or Christian living component, but it's just not so straightforward to understand as many other parts of the scriptures. Our series in Revelation, it isn't going to be that long. We're going to cover just three chapters over the next eight weeks or so. And the part we are in, Revelation 1 through 3, is more teaching-oriented. But what you'll notice, and you'll see it even in this passage, the kind of language John uses, the imagery, the symbolism, there's even some code words thrown in here and there. It'll feel different. 
than Paul's letter to, you know, Philippians or, or whatever. So just get it in your head. This is a different genre. It needs to be understood in a different way. If you miss the genre, if you think it's something it's not, you're going to miss his point. John wants to uncover something. He wants to unveil something. He wants us to see And in this first chapter, the main thing he wants us to see in this sort of vision he has of the Son of Man, he wants us to see Jesus. And he wants us to see who we are in relation to him. And in this Son of Man, we see he's not ordinary looking like he was, you know, for much of the Gospels. Uh, He is brilliant. He is glorious. And he actually keeps using the word like because he can't actually describe what he looks like. He can only make comparisons. But we'll get there. What's being unveiled in Revelation 1? Three things. First, the nature and composition of the church. There's a number of ways he describes who the people of God are, what they're like. We'll do that first. Second, we'll talk about what it means that Jesus is the God of the lampstands. What's all this lampstand talk? What does it mean? What's, what's, what's he doing with that? And third, we'll kind of hit some thematic stuff, the God of what I'm calling judgment and comfort. But first, nature and composition of the church. Look at verse 4. The book is addressed to the seven churches in Asia. Now in chapter, and they're listed a little bit later on. We, we will discover a number of interesting facts about these churches in the weeks to come. John writes a short letter to each of them. But seven, that's a favorite number of Revelation. It's all over the place here in this chapter. And if you read the rest of the book, it's all over the place everywhere. And what it stands for is completeness or fullness. So even as we say, yes, absolutely, John wrote to real people in real places, in in real Asia, uh, at the same time, the message is for the complete church, the whole church, the entire church throughout history. The seven churches are each a church, and the seven churches are together the church, you know, the capital C church. So then we, Resurrection Church, you know, 2022, we are part of who is being addressed by John. Now, we'll get back to the rest of his greeting in a later section, but for now, I want to focus about the comments he makes about who the church is because of what Christ has done. When I say church, I don't mean the building, uh, you know, know, pointy neo-Gothic architecture or whatever. I don't don't mean uh, nonprofit organizations. When I say church, what I mean is the, the people of God. The church is anyone who knows and trusts Jesus. Now, if you're not a regular church person, I don't think, you know, not everyone here is, you may have a number of ideas of what a church person is like or what they value. And if you are a church person, you too probably have a number of ideas of of what constitutes a Christian. But listen, I'll at least say this. Simply because a person attends a church does not mean they are a Christian. I can attend a senator's game. That does not automatically make me a fan. It wouldn't make me a fan uh, of theirs. I, I can sit in your garage. It does not make me your car. Like, the, the, just because you go to a place does not mean you are automatically the thing that is normally in that place. The church are those who know and trust Jesus. So let's, love, let's put aside some of our ideas for a moment, what we think church people are like. What's true of the church, according to John? I got four things. First, they've been freed from their sin and they're currently loved by Jesus. Look at them. So they're kind of there in the middle of verse 5. What does it mean to be part of the people of God? It means you've understood something, namely that your sin is not the only true thing about you. There's an additional truth, a more important truth, which is you are loved and forgiven more than you can imagine. You know, as we go through life, we discover things about ourselves. Some of them are really great. Oh, I didn't know. I have these, these skills and gifts or whatever. We discover some great things about ourselves, and we also discover some unpleasant things about ourselves. Sometimes they're silly. 
Our breath doesn't smell as good as we thought, or that stranger didn't think I was very nice or whatever. Uh, But we also discover more serious things. We aren't as joyful as we wish we were. We find ourselves being regularly envious of the lives of others, or we have a hard time taking a Sabbath rest. Part of the Christian life is to acknowledge those truths, refuse to sugarcoat them. They are bad. It's not good. It is true. But according to John, a Christian doesn't stop there. We believe on one hand, as we were saying earlier in the confession time, we believe we are so sinful Christ had to die for us to pay with his blood for what we've done. That's the language John uses here. But at the same time, Christ gladly did so. He freed us from the weight and debt of sin. And John says, he currently loves us. Sometimes Christianity feels like a past tense religion. We sit here being like, yes, Jesus died thousands of years ago. That somehow covers your sin. It bends the mind a little bit, but okay, sure. We forget, though, that as verse 5 teaches, his death was in the past, at least on our you know, human time scale, but his love is in the present. To him who loves us. That's right now. Right in the middle of a bad day. Right in the middle of, of screwing, messing up again. Right in the middle of get, getting bored and distracted while trying to read your Bible. He loves you right now. Do you know that? (laughs) Do do you you believe that? Second, John says, they've been made into a kingdom. That first point, kind of individualistic, or can can at least be taken in individualistic ways. This second is not. It says in verse 6, those who have been loved and freed by Jesus, they've been made into a kingdom, priests to God. Now, kingdom, priests, These are like mega themes in the Bible, multiple seminary lectures or whatever. I'll I'll try to give you the Coles notes. What does being in a kingdom imply? It implies at least being ruled by a king, right? Can't have a kingdom without a king or a queen, I suppose, but in Bible terms, a king. Uh, It means a sort of collective activity. We are together doing something. It implies a way of life. There's a certain way to live and there's rules and regulations in this kingdom. And even to some extent, it implies opposition to other kingdoms. Sometimes in life, it can feel like you are a lone ranger Christian, and you just kind of wander from place to place or wander from church to church, doing your own thing. And look, that may be experientially true, emotionally true, but the deeper reality, uh, John is saying, is that if Jesus is your king, then you are part of his kingdom. And therefore, there's a way of life expected of you. There are obligations, there are values to this kingdom. You didn't choose them. This kingdom isn't a democracy, it's a kingdom, you are ruled by someone, there's an allegiance required by God. And if we look back through the Gospels, we're reminded of the words of Jesus, that this kingdom is invisible, it's not visible, it's not part of our our physical geography, there's no place to go where you can see our castles and our, our, our borders or whatever, it's an invisible kingdom. To be a Christian then is much more akin to working at a Canadian embassy in a foreign land. You retain your primary citizenship. You're still a Canadian, but you're living and working somewhere else. And you're advocating for the homeland, you know, the values or whatever. But you exist amongst the people who live differently. And he says we're not just a kingdom, but also priests. Very briefly, priests minister to people on behalf of God. They, They mediate the work of God to people. So the kingdom of God has no army, but it does have priests. We exist in the world to minister to each other and to minister to our neighbors. Third, the, king, or the, the church exists in the midst of trouble. 
If you look down at verse 9, John calls himself a brother and a partner to these Christians. And specifically, he says he's partnering with them in the tribulation, the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Now, uh, in the original Greek, you know, slight nerd moment here, the words tribulation, kingdom, and patient endurance, they all have the same article, which just means they're all tied together. They, they express a, a singular reality, even though there's three words for them. So what John's saying is you cannot be a kingdom except as you faithfully and patiently endure trouble. Those things kind of all go together. Jesus says tribulation is ours in Jesus. In this world, Christians encounter many different kinds of trouble. And in the weeks to come, we're going to see the churches he writes to, they got all kinds of problems. Some internal, some external, some a combination. There, there's persecution. There's, there's all sorts of things going on. But for now, opposition, trouble, that's normal for a church, normal for the Christian life. Fourth, the church patiently endures. If we put these first three together, loved by Jesus, made into a kingdom, experiencing trouble, one could argue then what we mainly need for all of that is simply patient endurance. We need to not give up. We need to not get so discouraged that we quit. To be a Christian is a lot of just sort of trudging forward. Did you know that 25% of podcasts only have one episode? And over 60% of podcasts have fewer than 10 episodes. Now, simply producing content isn't what makes a podcast good. But it would seem, based on the statistics, that simply continuing, simply pushing out episodes, that's a big part in having a podcast. If you can just produce, you've solved your biggest hurdle. Early church fathers like Tertullian argued, patience is at the heart of being a Christian. Now, at the very heart, I don't know, I don't want to fight with Tertullian, but, you know, but especially in difficult times, especially during times of persecution and trouble, the ability uh, to simply persist in the Christian life is, is a lot of it. That's who the church is. It's who the people of God are. How does that match with your list? <laughs> is, that, is that what you expected him to say? Loved by God, made into a kingdom, patiently enduring tribulation? Maybe we need some new lists. Okay, part two, though. The God of the lampstands. Uh, who makes Christians what they are? Or to ask a question a different way, why do we trust what this book of Revelation has to say about who Christians are? We live in an age of largely self-constructed identity. And even to utter the identifier Christian, that can mean many different things to many different people. To call ourselves a Christian church, same problem. It can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. I, I recently came across this website a few weeks ago from a mainline denomination. They were in California. You know, I don't know why that's important. But they, they, they had recently hired a self-identified witch to work at their church. And by the explanation they offered on their website, they were just saying, we're simply trying to appeal to, to many different kinds of spiritualities. Now, that's a bit of an extreme example, but it illustrates my point. We, we want to be self-determined. We want to say, this is what a Christian is. This is what a, a Christian church is. And to be fair, even if you're like, that's crazy that a so-called Christian church would hire a witch. Well, how do you know they're wrong? If it's just my ideas versus your ideas, who's to say your ideas are better? But self-constructed identity is not what the scriptures teach. 
That's that's not how we find out who we are. In fact, one of the famous catechisms, uh, which is a kind of a question and answer thing, one of our famous catechisms goes this way. What is my only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul to Jesus Christ. So so in the face of the modern impulse for self-determination, self-construction, John says, someone is speaking to you. Someone's talking. Perhaps we forget that this isn't a book speaking, but a person. Ultimately, the appeal that I make is not just I have better ideas than someone else, but rather that the person of Jesus Christ is, is talking to us. And frankly, that's a relief from the kind of the project to construct a self. I mean, just imagine for a moment, if, you, if your identity is largely built on being a fantastic accountant, what happens when you're no longer an accountant? Or if your identity is built on just kind of being happy, sucking all the joy out of life, what happens if life is no longer happy or gets hard? The Christian premise is we don't begin with ourselves. We begin by listening to the voice of Jesus tell us who we are. So look down at verse 4. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And then in verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Did you see that same phrase repeated twice? God tells us he was, that's past tense, he is, present tense, and he is to come, that's future tense. The one who tells a church what it means to be a Christian, who tells a Christian what it means to be a Christian, he inhabits all of time. Or perhaps more accurately, he exists outside of time. He is not bound by it. He created it. In fact, if we imagine human time as a, you know, like a line progressing forwards, we might think of God as sort of this, a circle surrounding the line. He's not just going along our timeline with us. He surrounds our time. He's everywhere in it with Abraham and with our great-grandchildren. And interestingly, John puts the present tense first. Did you see that? God is the God who is. He's present with his people right now. The emphasis is, is, is on the now. He's also the Alpha and the Omega. That's the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. And that phrase, it's just shorthand for meaning uh, polar opposites, like saying, I am the north and the south. You know, everything is, is uh, you don't just inhabit the ends of the spectrum, but you also control everything between. So who is God to tell us who we are? Who is Jesus? He is the God of all time. He's the God of everything. He rules all circumstances in which we find ourselves. And as this is true of individuals, is this also true of the church? Well, look at verse 12. I turned to see the voice speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. And it skipped down to the very last verse, the last line. Uh, Verse 20 says, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Helpfully, John interprets it for us. And as I mentioned earlier, seven's a number representing the whole. So we can say, Jesus, the Son of Man, is the God of the churches at Pergamum and Sardis and whatever, but he's also the God of all the churches of all time. And when John told us in verse 13 that the Son of Man is in the midst of the lampstands, that means Jesus is tending to the lampstands, watching over them. Now, lampstands. Not, let, not light bulbs, <laughs> lampstands, uh, oil-fed lamps, you know, flames. Uh, you can't leave those unattended for very long. They run out of oil, maybe the flames get out of control or something blows onto them. If you had lampstands, you had to tend them, you had to watch over them. 
And this is the role that Jesus plays. He keeps the lampstands going. He watches over them. They, they do not, they cannot exist without him. Their fire would go out. There are no lampstands that he does not tend. Individual churches exist because Jesus wants them to. And this is going to become very important in future weeks because Jesus will warn some of the churches because of your sin, because of what, what's going on in your church. He, says, he often says, I'm on the verge of taking the lampstand away. You're going to be a not church soon if you keep going. But for now, we can just sit with this truth that our church, indeed every Christian church, does not belong to itself, but belongs to Jesus. We have no rights, no power, except what is delegated to us by Jesus. And we have no right to call a church mine, except in a, a kind of very kind of subordinate way. Uh, as a church planter, uh, there's a very curious dynamic, I think, that exists between me and all of you, me and this church. Because in the early days, I mean, I mean Jen, Jen was there and a few other people were there, but we, I had to basically make all the decisions for what this church would become. So we chose the music, and we chose the way the service would be structured, and we planned out the children's ministry, and, and the way we did things set the tone and the personality for what we would become. I was the one who put the rooster on the logo and, and all that stuff. And so if there's anything you don't like about the church, like it's probably my fault. I probably chose it at some point. You know, and as more people joined and got more involved, of course, decision-making begins to diversify. But I'll tell you this. It's very easy to feel like our church is mine. It's very easy to insist, these are the ways we do things because that's the way I think they should be done. I was here first. <laughs> uh, and, and I've given a lot of thought and a lot of effort to this place. And it's easy to feel like it belongs to me. And I know and that doesn't just happen to church planters and pastors, elders, deacons. It happens to regular people as well. That the way you like to do the coffee or the kids' ministry, it, it's your way. And frankly, you don't want to change. <laughs> and frankly, uh, you shouldn't have to change because this church or this ministry or this, this section is mine. And, and you've probably seen it. I've seen it. Sometimes churches get so hardened, they get so hostile to change, they essentially vote themselves out of existence because there's no room for anything or anyone new. And mine is the resounding cry, even as the church closes its doors. That's a terribly dangerous attitude for a church. Like, it's, it's super dangerous in me, and it's dangerous in a church. And listen to me, we do not walk among the lampstands, tending them and watching over them. That's not our job. That's Jesus' job. This church never was and it never will be mine. It doesn't belong to me. And it doesn't belong to you either. Jesus is the one who tends our lampstand. And he also tends the lampstand of West Village Church and Church of the Messiah, the Met, Jubilee, you know, all of them. Those are his they don't belong to those people either. They belong to him. And along with churches, you know, in France or Russia or where, you know, everywhere else, the, the church, it's, it's never ours. The God of the lampstands, he tells us who we are. Now third, we, we got to do this third part. The God of comfort and judgment. I want to look closely at this description of Jesus. And I'm going I'm to kind of whiz through these descriptors because there's a bunch of them. Let's pick it up in verse 13. 
First, first he says, clothed in a long robe with a golden sash. The robe, often the garment of a priest, the golden sash, signifies beauty, wealth, a kind of prominence. Says the hairs of his head were white. When we, we talked about this in Mark a couple of weeks ago in the Transfiguration. Uh, this is the way that Daniel described God in a vision he had. With this white hair, hair like snow, means that Jesus is being seen as God. Eyes like a flame of fire. Fire in the scriptures either means judgment or purity or both. Eyes like flames probably means both here. Feet like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. Feet symbolize foundation. What are you standing on? What's at the, at the bottom layer? And polished refined bronze, you know, fairly rare for them, but it, but it stands for purity. Jesus stands on this foundation of purity and righteousness. A voice like the roar of many waters. This is how Ezekiel described the voice of God in Ezekiel chapter 1. Again, Jesus equated with God. Holding seven stars in his right hand. Stars stand for angels, according to verse 20. This, I think this just suggests that Jesus commands and controls all of the angels. The hosts of heaven, all of them, the fullness of them are his to direct. Out of his mouth is a sharp two-edged sword. A two-edged sword is regarded by the prophets and the Psalms as a sword of judgment. There's this prophecy in Isaiah chapter 11 which says, The Messiah, when he comes, he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. It's a prophecy of judgment. His face like the sun shining in its full strength. The book of Judges talks about uh, victorious uh, warriors after a battle having faces that shone like the sun. It's Think of the glow and the flush of triumph and victory and glory. What do we get when we kind of put this image together? Well, the Son of Man is, is kind of alien, right? Like, he's a man, but he's not a man. He wears a robe with a golden sash, which is like, okay, I can get that. But he also has a sword coming out of his mouth. And he's got feet, but the feet glow. And he's got eyes, but they're, 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 they're burning like fire. As Christ overwhelms us. And John, in verse 17, when he sees him, falls down as though dead. Now I would submit to you this description, based on this description, that Jesus is both a God of judgment and of comfort. And here's why. There are judgment images laced all through that description. The sword from the mouth, the eyes like flames, the voice that roars. This is not a Jesus to be trifled with. And, it, and as we'll, we'll look at the letters to all the churches, many of them have a note of judgment. Jesus is going to tell them, here's where you've gone wrong. Here's what your problem is. He will not permit his lampstands, his churches, to walk in sin. They will either repent or he will abandon them. Now it's a political season in Ottawa, in Ontario, everywhere. Our civic elections are getting going. They're heating up. And one of the common features of public life is the non-apology apology. Maybe you've, you've heard this. When someone in the public eye, they, they mess up. And once in a while, you get a good, solid apology. You know, I was wrong and I'm sorry. But most of the time, you get something like, well, mistakes were made. Uh, or if, if someone, anyone, anywhere was offended, I apologize. Or didn't realize that would hurt your feelings. Or, you know, something like that. And the reason that many public figures get away with these kinds of, you know, apologies and quotations is because there's not really much we can do. It's like, well, you can tweet sarcastic things at them. You know, you can refuse to elect them three and a half years later, I suppose. Uh, I think sometimes we come to Jesus with half-hearted confession. I'm sorry if you were offended. I'm sorry if I hurt your feelings accidentally. We sometimes treat confession like we're addressing a social media audience. But this description re reminds us otherwise. 
Reminds us of who we are dealing with. When we confess our sin, we confess to a king with eyes of fire and a sword coming out of his mouth. He does not deal with half-hearted apologies. He's a God of judgment who insists on his people living up to his commands. Excuse me. But he's also a God of comfort, and we'll close with this. What happens when John falls down as though dead at this overwhelming vision? I think it's tremendously important. What happens? Jesus comes to him, he puts his right hand on John, and he says, fear not. Fear not. It's one of the most repeated commands in all the scriptures. When John is drowning in his own unworthiness, his guilt, shame, sense of his own sin, how overwhelmed he is, what Jesus tells him is, do not fear. You don't have to be afraid. Why? Well, most of the things we've already heard before, but they're repeated to John directly for John's own benefit. Because Jesus says, I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I died, but behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys to death and Hades. Keys, that symbolizes ownership. Jesus owns death, the grave, hell. They belong to him. There is a writer for a sports website I follow uh, who's dying and it's not normally reported on sports websites, <laughs> you know, uh, but they, they've, they've let him write a few columns about his journey. And he's 34. And he's got a two-year-old son and he's got a 33-year-old wife. And in his columns, reading, because I, I liked what he wrote about basketball, but, you know, reading, reading his columns and updates, you know, discovered that he's a Christian. And he just posted something about moving into a hospice to live out his final days, no more surgeries, no more treatments, kind of at the place with uh, you know, stage four cancer, nothing can be done. And what he quoted was 2 Corinthians chapter four, which says this, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that, this, that, that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, not driven to despair, persecuted, not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. So death is at work in us, but life in you. This writer is a man who's known what it's like to be overwhelmed with life, stricken, literally, and yet had sort of in some ways had the hand of Jesus come down on him and tell him, you don't have to be afraid. The, the resounding emphasis of chapter one, please hear me. It's not judgment. It's not uncertainty of the future. It's not the impending doom of persecution. It's not the beast from the sea. It's that no matter what comes, anything, anyone, no matter what comes, the one who died and is alive forevermore, he will meet you in the midst of it. So fear not. You don't have to be afraid. You got cancer? You got persecution, you got family troubles, you got marriage troubles, you've got something far worse. I'm not trying to minimize them. I'm just telling you, if you belong to Jesus, he's saying, I'm going to meet you in the middle of them. And he's with us as a church on our journey as well. We are not abandoned to like this gymnasium. Go do your best, see what happens. No, no. God has not abandoned the church in Ottawa, Canada. He wants to renew us. He wants to cleanse us. He wants to grow us. Of course, his eyes are flames of fire. But listen to me. He wants us not to fear because he is the living one. He is alive forevermore. Let's pray.
God, we are thankful and grateful for this passage, which teaches us, but more than just teach us sort of facts about you, it speaks to our hearts and reminds us that in the face of guilt and shame and fear and and all sorts of stuff, that, that you are with us. Your right hand is on us, telling us not to fear, but to trust you. Maybe trust you with all the little things in our lives, but the big things as well. Help us to see you. Help us to hear you. In Christ's name we ask all this. Amen.